grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, my brothers, my sisters in Christ. It's called a parasocial relationship, and they are on the rise ever since the dawn of social media. Celebrity has a social media account. You follow it. It's your favorite actor, musician, athlete, fitness, personality, self-help guru, whatever. And you get updates on their life. You get to see a regular picture of them. They're telling you what they're going on, what they're working on, on the side, whatever. You start to feel involved in what they have going on. You start to feel involved in their life. And then maybe you start liking their posts liking their statuses, you start commenting. Maybe they like one of your comments and your dopamine just goes through the roof. You're having a great day because they noticed you. You feel involved. You feel like you have a relationship with them, but it is entirely one-sided. They know so much less about you than you know about them. And while you think about them, you, you think about what they're doing, and you hold them up in your life as a mentor or as an idol, they don't know anything about you. They don't even know your name. You're just a statistic to them, a notification to them. They don't care about you nearly as much as you care about them. That's a parasocial relationship. As I read our first lesson for today from Genesis, maybe it struck you as a bit odd, this whole back and forth, this auctioneering. Abraham's like, how about 50, 45, 30, 20, 10 people in Sodom? Maybe we weren't exactly sure what's going on. It's clear that there's something in the subtext, but I'm glad that you're here this morning because this lesson is perfect for any one of you who has ever wondered if your relationship with God is parasocial. For anyone who has ever felt like maybe they care more about God than God cares about them. For anyone who has ever been tempted to feel like their relationship with God is completely one-sided, this is the lesson for you. And I'm happy to take a deeper dive into God's conversation with Abraham. Because Abraham was having a pretty interesting day on this day that these events occurred. Three strangers were walking through the desert and they just passed Abraham's property. Now in Abraham's day and still in certain parts of the world, hospitality is a very big deal, even if you're treating just strangers, even if just strangers show up, especially in the desert. So if somebody shows up on your property in Abraham's culture, you invite them in you give them something to eat, something to drink. If they want, they can stay the night. Because who knows, in the desert, maybe you're saving their life. So Abraham does what is customary in his day. He invites these three strangers into his home. He prepares a delicious meal for them. They enjoy an afternoon together. And at some point, it becomes clear to Abraham, these are not just ordinary guests. In fact, at some point, it becomes clear to Abraham that these are not just human beings. This is God and two angels appearing in human form. Can you imagine? 
after serving a meal to somebody, finding out that they were an angel, let alone God. And so when all is said and done and they have, have their little hangout in that afternoon, God and those two angels, they have a journey to take care of. They're on a mission. So they get up and they go on their way. And the two men in the text, uh, that's the angels. They keep going on their mission. But God, in human form, he stops. He stops and he talks to himself. He makes the thoughts in his head known out loud. And he's doing this on purpose, and we'll get to why. But within Abraham's earshot, God says, I'm going down to Sodom and Gomorrah because the outcry against them is so great, I just have to see if it's as bad as the outcry makes it seem. And there's a lot there. Doesn't God know everything? Doesn't God already understand what's going on? Yes, he does, and we'll get to why he does this in a second. But Abraham's ears, they perk up because Sodom and Gomorrah have a special place in Abraham's heart. Just a couple chapters ago in Genesis, Abraham was part of a military expedition. Abraham, the, the warlord, I guess you could call him, he was part of an expedition that saved Sodom and Gomorrah from oppression. So he's got a soft spot in his heart for them. Plus, Sodom and Gomorrah is where his nephew lives, nephew named Lot and his family. But Abraham knows something else about Sodom and Gomorrah, that they were terrible, terrible places to live. Even after how much Abraham had helped them, after they had seen God's goodness through Abraham, surely he shared God's name with them, things had gone south really fast in Sodom and Gomorrah. And the best way that I can describe how bad things had gotten in Sodom and Gomorrah is just a basic and rampant disregard for human life. There was no law in these cities preventing people from mistreating each other in the worst of ways. There was sexual perversion, there was cheating on, on people, there was misusing the courts, there was all sorts of stuff. It was the worst of the worst of society. Sodom and Gomorrah had become a vortex of sin and evil. It had become a black hole of wickedness where no light, no righteousness could escape. And Abraham knows God has to do something about that. There's a feeling that we get, I feel it too, when you read a news story or when you hear a story of something terrible happening, somebody attacks a police officer with a knife or somebody's driving down the highway and they have such road rage that when somebody cuts them off, they reach for a gun and start firing at the other, other vehicle. At first glance, it, it fills me with horror, it fills us with, with disgust at the way human beings can treat other human beings, but then you keep reading, then you find out that the person was high at the time, or drunk, or they weren't in their right mind, or they had untreated mental illness or, or something like that. And we have to admit, when we get that detail, we feel a little better, don't we? Still disgusting, still horrible, still evil what they had done, but at least now I can separate myself from that person who did that. I feel a safe distance away from that level of wickedness. And I think we can do the same thing with Sodom and Gomorrah, can't we? 
this darkness, this evil, this wickedness that had befallen these cities, that is just above average evil. But is it? The wickedness, the darkness that was so prevalent, that was so easy to see in Sodom and Gomorrah, holds up a mirror to the darkness, the evil, the wickedness that exists in every one of our hearts. Sure, I don't do the same things that the citizens of, so of Sodom and Gomorrah do, but that's because I have curbs, I have checks and balances. Our sinful nature has desires that we know we shouldn't follow, so we don't, because we don't want to get in trouble. But Sodom and Gomorrah is a perfect example of what our sin will do when it's allowed to run wild. That wickedness that is there in those cities that deserves such punishment exists in every one of us, and we're scared of this fact. That's why we're reaching for any excuse to distance ourselves from real evil, from real wickedness, because in our heart of hearts we know that God is the righteous judge of all the earth. And as a righteous, holy God, he cannot let wickedness go unpunished which makes what happens next even more incredible. Because Abraham, a sinful human being with that darkness in his own heart, hears God's plan and he approaches him. He starts talking with God and not only is he talking to him, but he's kind of telling God what to do, isn't he? God, you as the righteous judge, you should consider my point of view, God. What right does Abraham, a sinful human being, have to say anything to God? What right does any one of us have to approach God and say a word to him when we are so different than he is, when we are so unholy, whereas he is holy? Well, look at what had happened. God had invited Abraham to talk to him. God invites us to call him our father. Something happens to me about once or twice a day, sometimes even more, I lose my keys. And what do I do when I lose my keys? I sprint around the house, turning over every shoe, every shirt on the floor, everything on the counter. I'm looking at every possible place for my keys, and it's always, it's always in some obvious place, obviously. But while you're doing that, while I'm doing that, I'm shouting, I'm saying, where are my keys? Who am I talking to? Myself. But why am I saying that out loud? Because I'm making my thoughts known so that if somebody has some inside information about where my keys are, they're welcome to chime in at any time. Look at what God is doing for Abraham. God could have just skipped ahead to the part where he blew up Sodom and Gomorrah. God did not have to appear in human form at all. God does not have to travel. God already knew how wicked Sodom and Gomorrah was. But he appears, he walks by Abraham's property, knowing he's going to invite him in, and he talks out loud. He reveals his will to Abraham. He lets Abraham in on what he's thinking. He's inviting Abraham to chime in. And Abraham does, and he acknowledges who God is, 
the righteous judge of all the earth. And he is. God is just. God is a judge. But maybe we need to tweak our idea of what a judge is just a little bit. Because when I think of a judge, all I can think about is somebody in a court who punishes evil people, who doles out punishment that fit the crime, right? God is a little bit more than that. God is, is righteous. He is a judge in the sense that when he sees an imbalance in his creation, he's got to correct it. He's righteous. And nothing has created more of an imbalance in his perfect good creation than sin, which has royally messed everything up. That darkness that has changed us, that has made us mistreat each other. God had to do something about that as the righteous judge. He cannot let it go. So what did he do? He, the righteous judge, showed mercy. Because God is just, he is justice, but he is also mercy. And this is a different kind of mercy than the mercy that you show the spider in your office that you shoo into a box and then let outside. This is a different kind of mercy than we show people who do us wrong, but we refuse to press charges. This is the kind of mercy that led God himself to take on human flesh and dwell among us, wicked, dark, sinful, evil people, to spend 33 years with us miserable creatures, not sinning one time, not lashing out against us, not bringing us wrath or anger, but going to a cross and shedding his blood to purchase us to save our lives from the death that we so clearly deserve, but to forgive us. And then Jesus rises from the grave to seal, to guarantee that your death, that your sin, that the devil himself will not take away this new relationship you have with God. And this relationship was given to you as a gift when you were marked in your baptism as a child of God. You are God's child. When you call him your father, you're calling him what he is, your father who loves to listen to you. And your father does for you exactly what he did for Abraham. He invites you in. He invites you into relationship with him. He invites you in to conversation with him. God had made his thought processes, his will, his ideas known to Abraham, and he does that for you and me, too, on the pages of Scripture, telling us everything that we need to know about him, telling us everything that he wants to do, everything that he wants for us, so that we chime in so that we talk back to him, so that we weigh in. Because we're just kids talking to our father. And Abraham serves as the perfect example for how to do that. How did Abraham address God? Because when Abraham's talking out loud to God, that's exactly the same thing you and I are doing when we pray to God in our heads, when we fold our hands, when we join in the worship service. How did Abraham do it? He prayed to God according to what he knew about him. He said, God, I know you're just. I know you punish sin, but I know you're merciful. And Abraham leans in to God's mercy. And he says, consider your 
mercy. That's what you and I do when we pray. We hold God to what we know about him. We say, God, I know you provide. I know you are loving. I know you are there for me. I know you're my father. So do this, fill in the blank. God is not afraid of those kinds of prayers. God loves it when you pray according to what you know about him. And Abraham prays boldly. He says, God, if you can find 50 people in Sodom, if you can find 45, 30, 20, 10, then spare the city. And God says, yes, that's what I will do. And if you know the end of the story, you know Sodom and Gomorrah do get blown up. But that's not because God changed his mind. God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, but he saves Lot, Abraham's nephew, and Lot's daughters. But you'd be hard-pressed to make the case, reading on in Genesis, that even Lot and his daughters were righteous people. God gave Abraham more than what he asked for, but Abraham didn't have all the information, and neither do we at any given time. But brothers and sisters, God is not waiting for the final draft of your prayer. He's happy to take it as it is. As much information as you're missing. If you pray for something without knowing that if you got it, it would actually be worse for you than if you didn't get it, God's not going to ignore your prayer for that very reason. So Abraham prays boldly, and he prays persistently. At any moment in time, God could have lost his patience at any moment, God could have said, you know, Abraham, I'm going to stop you right there because Sodom and Gomorrah, they're so wicked, and I'm, I'm just going to save your breath because there's not even 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, so I'm just going to destroy it, deal with it. God could have said that. But instead, what do we see him doing? We see him standing there listening, being pummeled with Abraham's petitions over and over again. And God, brothers and sisters, is not rolling his eyes while he's talking to Abraham. He's not looking at his clock saying, I'm going to let you finish, but man, this is taking a while. God's heart is leaping for joy because his child in faith is praying and talking to him. That's what happens when you pray to God. God is not rolling his eyes saying, oh, if only they understood. God is not looking at his watch saying, can't they understand that I got stuff to do? God's heart is leaping for joy when you talk to him, when you bring your comments, your questions, your, your stresses, and your petitions to him. God is so happy to hear your voice. This is what makes the God of the Bible so different from the deities and gods of any other religion. In any other religion, the God that is presented to you is a parasocial God. In any other religion, you probably care about that God more than he cares about you. And your whole life is spent trying to get their attention, trying to earn the right for them to listen to you. But you got to see how different the true God, the God of the Bible, is from that. You don't have to earn his attention. He brings you into relationship with him. He's done everything possible to forgive your sins, to make you his child. You have a constant audience with God. It's like God is always on the phone, always on the other line. You never have to worry about God ignoring you because he loves you. 
This is the farthest thing from a one-sided relationship. God is constantly involved with your life. He knows what's on your mind. He knows what's on your heart, and he wants to hear you talk to him. And he loves to hear your prayers, and he loves to answer your prayers. So the conclusion is simple. If God is so wonderful and so constantly listening and so loving and so merciful, pray to him as boldly as you want, as often as you want, as constantly as you want, because you know he's listening, because he loves you. Amen. Would you pray?